When your beloved is gone, what do you do then? Welcome to another look into the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot, as she called us to live to a higher standard each day and to not be satisfied with just a little religion in our lives, but to give God our best. As this series continues in the coming weeks, we'll hear from family, friends, and others who are influenced by Elizabeth's life and message. We continue our extended series into Operation Alka and other events during Elizabeth's time in Ecuador. Today, parts one and two of When Someone You Loved Dies. We'll hear uh, Jim and Elizabeth's daughter, Valerie, talk about the shocking death of Jim Elliott, but that he knew it could happen. We'll also hear from Lars Gren, third husband of Elizabeth Elliot. We'll hear a little bit about Elizabeth's final hours before she went to heaven and about a hymn that was important in those last hours. Right now, from March of 1989, it's part one of When Someone You Loved Dies. It's in part the story of a 1934 Blue Plymouth. It's about a feeling of utter desolation and abandonment. It's about life going on even with dishes in the sink. The world keeps spinning. But maybe you wonder, why? Why must life go on? Would people care if Elizabeth just kind of gave up? Were people avoiding her as she walked through the valley of the shadow of death? You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says and underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot, talking with you this time about when someone you love dies. When I was eight years old, my parents bought their first car. It was a huge event in our lives. It was a 1934 second-hand Plymouth, and this meant that occasionally my parents could give us a ride home from school. One day, when it was pouring rain, I came rushing out of school, sure that I was going to see the little blue Plymouth sitting there waiting for me, but I got there just in time to see the rear end of that Plymouth disappear over the crest of the hill, headed toward home. My mother had picked up my brother, and I guess she had just decided that I must have gone on home because I was late coming out of school for some reason. I remember the feeling of utter desolation. She was gone. The car was gone. When someone you love dies, you have that terrible feeling of utter desolation and abandonment. He or she is gone. He was my life. I was not ready. Not quite yet, anyway. When my husband Jim died, I thought that we had prepared ourselves fairly well. We had talked about the possibilities of his being killed. When my second husband died, we knew for months that the chances, humanly speaking, were zero. But in each case, I just had the feeling, if only I had just a few more days to do or to undo some things, a few more days to say or to unsay some things, wouldn't it have been a little bit better? Wouldn't it have been perhaps easier? But of course, the answer is no. There's nothing that's going to make it better or easier, humanly speaking, to face the death of someone we love. And then you have to experience the strange feeling that 
the world is still going around just the way it went around before. Nothing has changed. The sunlight lies on the carpet in exactly the same patterns that it did before. The dishes are in the rack, the same old dishes. His razor, his comb is on the shelf. His shoes are in the closet. I set about trying to get rid of those things that reminded me of him that I didn't need anymore, his razor, his comb, his shoes. But every now and then the mail comes and somebody reminds you. Or the phone rings. Life goes on. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, etc. I think of Edna St. Vincent Millay's poem that ends up, Life must go on. I forget just why. Why do anything? That was my feeling. I wondered why I should even bother to comb my hair. Who would care? To whom would it make any difference whether I made the bed? And now I had to remember to cook one egg, not three. I had to remember to eat. I wasn't always very hungry. People were nervous when they met me. Sometimes people actually went across the street in order not to have to pass by and speak to me about my bereavement. They would use words like, passed away. Maybe I'm some kind of a freak, but I like to use clear, direct words. My husband died. He didn't just pass away, he was dead. It was the people who asked me about him, wanted me to talk, who allowed me to talk about Jim, that were the greatest help to me. Then I had to learn to say I once again. I'm going to do this instead of we. Or come to my house, not our house. People talk about adjustment. It seems rather an understatement, as though there was some sort of mechanical tinkering with routines which somehow would cover the ascent from the pit. Adjustment? Well, it was a great deal more than that. But death, as we who are Christians know from the scriptures, is always meant to lead to resurrection. There is a progression. It's not the end of everything. It's not an end in itself. And yet the death of someone we love is, in a sense, our death, too. We were the lovers. The death of the beloved is the death of the lover as well. We have to go through a dark valley. And since I've been through that valley twice myself, I can remember three ways particularly in which God helped me as we passed through that valley together, he and I. Remember that the psalmist said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. These three things. Number one, be still and know that he is God. Those words come from Psalm 46. That psalm begins with these words, God is our shelter and our refuge, a timely help in trouble. So we are not afraid when the earth heaves and the mountains are hurled into the sea, when its waters seethe in tumult and the mountains quake before his majesty. The psalmist is describing various kinds of natural cataclysms, mountains shaking and kingdoms tottering, waters roaring and foaming, nations raging. Death is certainly a cataclysm, 
I guess it's at the very top of the list of traumas. And it seems to most of us to be the very worst thing that can possibly happen. When it has happened, it's hard to get our bearings, just as it would be for people in an earthquake, or if the mountains were shaking, or the kingdom was tottering. But the psalmist reminds us the Lord of hosts is with us. We are not alone. Verse 8, come and see what the Lord has done, the devastation he has brought upon earth. Yes, devastation. He breaks bows, he says. He snaps the spear and burns the shield in the fire. Sometimes it seems as though God is breaking not just bows and shattering spears, but breaking our hearts, shattering our lives. And then after all this pandemonium, the psalmist says, Be still and know that I am God. It's the voice of the Lord speaking. I am God, high over the nations, high above the earth. And then the psalmist speaks again, The Lord of hosts is with us. When you've lost somebody, perhaps you feel that stillness is something you've got far too much of. The house is very quiet. Your life seems to have come to a dead halt. But it is exactly there that you can be still and know that he is God. This is a deliberate looking at God. It's an obligation, like cooking a meal. You must choose to do it because it needs to be done. Know that he is God. This stillness, this fulfillment of obligations, this carrying on with the ordinary tasks of life has a wonderful power to save us from ourselves. I had a letter just recently from a woman whose husband had been out of work for 43 months. She said as the months began to wear on and her husband was around the house, she too felt as though she was out of work. She collapsed on the couch and she said, if it hadn't been for one of your books, I think I'd still be on the couch. But she read in one of my books that old English adage, do the next thing. She said, I can't tell you how it helped me. I got up off that couch. I set about doing the next thing. One of the things that has helped me to be still and to know that he is God is repeating the creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. These are objective facts which are not altered in the slightest by the cataclysmic events that have taken place in my own life. It raises my sights. It gives me a different perspective. The second thing which has helped me tremendously is to give thanks. What is there to give thanks for? God is in charge. God is with me. God is at work, even in this thing which seems so hard for me to take. Let me read to you from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, chapter 4. He says, These little troubles, which are really so transitory, are winning for us a permanent, glorious, and solid reward out of all proportion to our pain. Another translation, 
instead of permanent glorious and solid reward, speaks of a weight of glory. That's a mystery to me. I can't even imagine what that weight of glory means, but it's some kind of permanent glorious and solid reward out of all proportion to our pain. And these facts, which I find in the Word of God, stand solidly against the facts of death and loneliness, the things which are breaking my heart. Paul goes on to say, For we are looking all the time, not at the visible things, but at the invisible. The visible things are transitory. It is the invisible things that are really permanent. And the third thing is to refuse self-pity. Self-pity is one of the most deadly things that you and I can fall into. It's paralyzing. It's poisonous. It's a death that has no resurrection, a sinkhole from which no rescuing hand can drag you because you have chosen to sink. But self-pity must be refused. With the help of God, you can. Part one of a two-part look at When Someone You Loved Dies. We hear from Valerie Elliott Shepard, daughter of Jim and Elizabeth, as she says that Jim knew he might not come back alive. My father's death, of course, that story of the five men being killed went around the world and was a shock to thousands and thousands of people. And yet, this is what he had said, Lord, if my life could be a short life on earth then may the zeal for you consume me. Valerie Elliott Shepard. Later in our program, we'll hear from Lars Gren, third husband of Elizabeth, as he talks about Elizabeth's final hours before she went to heaven and about a hymn that was important in those last moments. Right now, When Someone You Loved Dies, part two of our look at that, we'll hear about three more things that could help you when someone you love dies. I gave you three things which have helped me greatly when someone I've loved died, and I want to give you three more today. Number four is acceptance. God calls me in a new way to himself. Through the death of someone I've loved, I have recognized the fact that this is a new vocation. God is calling me to learn to know him, in a new context. It's only a stage of my journey, but it is a necessary stage, necessary to my ultimate perfection and my joy. Does that make sense? I'm always talking to you about a gateway to joy, and yet that gateway to joy so often involves things which you and I would never have chosen. Does it make sense to say that the death of someone you love could possibly be a gateway to joy? In the first chapter of James, The writer says, When all kinds of trials and temptations come into your lives, my brothers, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. Realize that they come to test your faith and to produce in you the quality of endurance. There's a good reason for joy. God is allowing me this test, which is going to produce maturity, a quality of endurance, which James goes on to say, as the process goes on, will lead you to maturity. Now, it's a very different response to suffering from resignation or just bowing your bloodied head to fate or to chance 
or to helplessness. This is an active exercise of faith. It's a deliberate yes to God. As the psalmist said, I will take the cup of salvation. That's acceptance. Yes, Lord. In the fifth chapter of Romans, Paul says this, It doesn't mean that we have only a hope of future joys. We can be full of joy here and now, even in our trials and troubles. These very things will give us patient endurance. This, in turn, will develop a mature character, and a character of this sort produces a steady hope, a hope that will never disappoint us. Just think of those words. We can be full of joy here and now, even in our trials and troubles. Now, how exactly can I accept the death of someone I love? It's not by ignoring the facts. It's by looking at them clearly, straightly. It's by acknowledging your real feelings, your heartbreak. Spread it all out to the Lord. Run to Him. Show Him the hurt, just the way a little child runs to its mother and says, Look, Mama, look at my knee. And when Mama looks at it, recognizes that it really does hurt, and does something for the little child, he comes to a point of acceptance. Ask for God's healing in your hurt. Believe that God is really in the process of giving it to you now, in and through this thing. And say to him, for you, Lord, I'll take it. I don't know what you'll do, but I trust you. I thought maybe I'd read you just a little snippet from my journal back in 1973, just after my second husband had died. As I think of my widowhood, I see it as a displacement, of course. But as a Christian, I am displaced only in relationship to human society and as I experience loss in my immediate situation. I am still a member of Christ's body, irreplaceable in the total prayer of the Church. I pray for wholeness and continuance in the great movement of the Church toward God, for the humble and grateful acceptance of the obligation laid upon me specifically in this displacement which is really a reassignment. All of those things have been instrumental in helping me to accept, to say yes to God. My prayer has been, grant me the grace to change what can and should be changed, and the grace to accept what cannot be changed. Imagine what the refusal of these unchangeable facts might mean. You can refuse God. You can be bitter and angry, and shake your fist at him, and God is probably not going to strike you dead with a lightning bolt, as he could if he wanted. But just from your own standpoint, imagine what refusal is going to accomplish. It will bring about in your own life bitterness, resentment, and hopelessness, and you'll be stultifying the work of God. The fifth thing to do which I've found so helpful in accepting the death of someone I love is to offer my feelings to God. Offer up my loneliness. Offer up my heartbreak. Offer up my grief. Grief is a very real thing. We can't skip over it. It's not even a healthy thing to skip over it, doctors tell us. If you skip it now, you'll probably have to deal with it later. 
So acknowledge it. Remember that Jesus wept when Lazarus died. There's nothing wrong with tears. But offer it up to God. You don't have to wallow in self-pity. You don't have to sit yourself down in a corner and feel sorry for yourself. But offer up these very real human feelings to God. And then the sixth thing is to do something for somebody else. That is wonderful therapy. It's an overt action which overcomes the inertia of grief. It's amazing what it can do for you. If you haven't got what it takes to put your coat on and go out and knock on somebody's door and do something for somebody else, I would suggest that maybe you could go downstairs in the kitchen and bake a cake for somebody or make a casserole for that busy young housewife down the street who has three or four children and a new baby. Just do something. Maybe you don't even know who you're baking the cake for. But God knows, and one of these days you'll find out. If you've stuck it in your freezer, there it will be. And the action in itself becomes a real remedy to you. I have a friend named Arlita who's been working on a book for mothers. And recently she has had a real heartbreak with one of her own relatives. She felt very rejected. And when I called her to ask how the book was going, she said, well, you know, I really haven't done very much because I've been dealing with my own problems, my own rejection from this person. And she told me the story. Well, you know what I said to Arlita? I can't imagine any better therapy for your own heartbreak than to just get to work on that book. In fact, have you thought about the fact that this heartbreak could be in itself the very way in which God is qualifying you to put more depth into that book than you could have ever put in if you hadn't had this experience? Think of the women standing at the cross, their hearts absolutely shattered because the one they loved, the Lord Jesus, had just been nailed there. But when the body was taken down from the cross, we read that the women went out to buy spices. There was something they could do, one little thing. They did that thing, and I'm sure that they found balm for their own sorrow in the doing of one more thing for Jesus. Pray for strength to give away. If you don't feel that you even have enough strength to get through your own day, you might be amazed to discover that God can give you strength even to give away. Out of our poverty comes riches for somebody else. Out of our weakness comes strength when we turn it over to God. So let me review those three things acceptance, offering, and doing something for somebody else. In my last talk, it was number one, be still and know that he is God. Number two, give thanks. And number three, refuse self-pity. St. Francis, 700 years ago, prayed this prayer. Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. 
Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. That prayer distills the essence of the Christian life, I believe, the transfiguration of our suffering that we find in the cross of Jesus. We are not here just to be consoled, but to console, not just to be understood, but to understand, not to be loved, but to love. I really believe that this is the way to resurrection. This is the gateway to joy. Be still. Know that he is God. Give thanks. Don't pity yourself. Say yes. Offer it up. Do something for somebody else. That's part two of When Someone You Loved Dies, originally aired in 1989. Well, in 2015, Elizabeth Elliot made her way to her heavenly home. But what about those final hours on earth? Here's Lars Gren to give us a glimpse into those final moments. On uh, Monday morning, why, uh, of this last week, now I can't believe that more than a week has gone by, then that was the worst of times, and yet it was one of the sweetest days for Elizabeth. But uh, Kay and I were with her at 1 a.m. when she suffered what appeared to be a massive stroke, and uh, shortly after Anna, the second caregiver that we had for a short time, came in. And it was evident after this that uh, the time was uh, drawn to a close. And uh, we had put her into bed. She had, we had gotten her up, and so we put her down into bed. And then I called Valerie, and in the meantime, we were singing hymns to her, reading, reading uh, scripture, and just patting her and trying to keep her calm. And, and, and she did. She calmed down. And over the next five hours, we continued this reading and comforting Elizabeth with hands and songs and prayers, with Valerie on a speakerphone with, with us and for some time. And the granddaughter Elizabeth rang from England, and so she sang. I mean, it was almost like we were having a little gathering together. And uh, toward the end, I, I thought about a poem that Elizabeth often quoted, and I couldn't get the first line. And I thought about it, thought about it. I think the Lord just put it in my head. All, all of a sudden, I told Kia, I said, it's in heavenly love abiding. So we read this, read that to her. About an hour later or so, there was just that quickening and a weakening breath. Elizabeth opened her blue eyes once more and then just closed them. I thought it was a slight smile. I said, I believe she has left us. And from that moment on, it was the sweetest of times for Elizabeth. 6.15 on Monday morning, the 15th. In heavenly love abiding, no 
Change my heart shall fear, and such and safe is such confiding, for nothing changes here. The storm may roar without me, my heart may low be laid, but God is round about me, and cannot be dismayed. Wherever he may guide me, no want shall turn me back, my shepherd is beside me, and nothing can I lack. His wisdom ever waking, his sight is never dim. He knows the way he's taken, and I will walk with him. Green pastures are before me, which yet I have not seen. Bright skies will soon be over me, but dark clouds have been. I hope I cannot measure my path, for life is free. My Savior has my treasure, and he will walk with me. Home by Anna Waring. And so it was the worst of days, and yet best and sweetest of days. Lars Gret. Well, hopefully these thoughts have helped you. May God's comforts be yours, a peace that passes all understanding. Well, thank you for letting us join you there in your home or your office, maybe out uh, taking a walk, wherever we found you today. And on behalf of the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation, in cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network, we've come to you today. And let me invite you to check out all the resources available at elizabethelliot.org. Pretty easy to remember. Elizabeth is spelled with an S, elizabethelliot.org. And until next time, may God remind you each and every day, you are loved with an everlasting love. And underneath are the everlasting arms in your time of need.